Hi, and welcome to this audio edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? with host Doris Hansen. On this program, we discuss polygamy and Mormon fundamentalism from a biblical Christian perspective. We talk about the history of polygamy, its modern-day fruit, share stories from people who have escaped polygamy, and talk about current events relating to polygamy. You can learn more about the video edition of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. And now, here's Doris. Our show tonight. This is Polygamy. What love is this? And I'm your host, Doris Hansen. And with our co-host Earl Erskine, we both want to thank you for sharing part of your evening with us tonight as we talk about early Mormon history. I have only one announcement to make before we get started. However, um, the Utah County Support Group meeting for those who are interested in migrating from religion. Um, to a loving and personal relationship with Jesus Christ and also for interested Christians who would like to to help out is being held next Tuesday that would be the August 20th at 6 p.m. it's a monthly meeting that they have and it's being held at First Baptist Church in Provo Utah and for more information you can call 801 374-8489 and again we recommend heartily that if you are leaving one of the Mormon um, uh, religions that's in this culture that you get yourself a support group because it's very important. It's a, it's a tough journey out but it's well worth it but it's much easier if you can find a support group or pe people that will help you along the way. You know we had a few comments about last week's show with Lynn and Michael Wilders, our guests who are former Mormons. One lady emails us after almost every show that we do and she just makes flat statements and remarks about her faith but she never has anything of substance to say and she never gives any references that she's done any studies or biblical studies on her own to prove the statements that she makes. Of course, she denied everything that we talked about during the show last week. She said it couldn't possibly be true and how she would know that without having first-hand knowledge of every experience that we talked about remains a mystery. And as usual, we had our share of complaints that uh, former Mormons were being interviewed on our show. Although our show is primarily for polygamists, this is a Mormon culture we live in and polygamy doctrine and practice is closely related to LDS church practices. There are viewers who call us fraud because our show touches on the mainline LDS church at times rather than narrowly relating only to polygamy. Well, they're entitled to their anger and to their opinion. but. The polygamous shun people who leave polygamy as much or more than the mainline Mormons do, and that's what we were talking about last week. So why are we criticized for talking about something that both religions practice? We were accused of saying that Mormon doctrine commands shunning. We never said that. We did say that Mormonism, which includes the fundamentalists, practice shunning, and they do. It's not an LDS doctrine. We never said it was a doctrine, but it is often their behavior, and it is definitely polygamous doctrine. And we applaud you, any of you, who don't practice shunning against those who leave. There are many who don't, but there are many more who do. Shunning was practiced in early Mormonism. In fact, a person 
could have, and some did have, their heads cut off for daring to try and walk away from their Mormon faith during pioneer polygamous Mormonism. This really happened. It's our history. And I say our history because the fundamentalists and the Mormons share the same history. We appreciate everyone's comments. We always enjoy getting them, but we do wish with all of our heart that you would at some point be careful, more careful how you listen. That instead of complaining so much that you would start researching and find these things out for yourselves. You know, tonight, Earl Erskine and I are going to discuss a particular time of early Mormon history that very few people are familiar with. It was in the late 1850s when fervent, uh, fervent Mormon a spiritual revival broke out and all kinds of horrible events took place. And we used several sources for the information that we're going to use for tonight's discussion. And after the break, we'll list um, a lot of those sources on the screen. That way you can do your own research, which we always encourage our viewers to do so that you can find these things out for yourselves. So, Earl, we're going to get moving on this. Hi. It's lots of information yeah, and uh, lots of interesting stuff. We'll see how much of it we can get through with our viewers. This so-called spiritual revival is most often referred to as the Mormon Reformation. Uh, wild, <coughs> wild sayings were common and wild and lawful behavior and cruel treatment by the Mormons, not only to themselves and to each other, but also to the people that they called the Gentiles. In January of 1855, a Mormon named Joseph Hovey went to Payson to preach. He held a, ser a, a series of meetings, and during those meetings, he was accusing the people of all sorts of sins and crimes, and he scathingly denounced them uh, and said that it, the people were trembling under his fierce denunciations. He accused them of theft and licentiousness and lying and swindling and cheating and hypocrisy and of being lukewarm in their religion. He accused them of every sin of omission and every sin of commission and he represented himself as the Lord's messenger sent to warn Southern Utah that their souls were in danger and they were loaded with guilt. One report wrote that they were exhorted to, and I quote, repent, confess, and be rebaptized, was his urgent call. And all your sins shall be forgiven you, yea, verily, for so hath the Lord promised, end quote. You'll find this in wife number 19. Now, they mention things like this all through their preaching, but the forgiveness of sins come only through Je the cross of Jesus right. Christ. And yet, we never see that preached in any of these quotes. We've never seen no, that preached. No, and there are other quotes that will come up, and it doesn't discuss Jesus at all as far as uh, salvation or... And, and then in there, like you said, being rebaptized. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and baptism, does, yeah, that doesn't, yeah. Uh, doesn't have any saving grace in it at all. Um, so this man was stirring up people into a frenzy, and meetings were held all day long and often way into the night. In fact, someone said it was madness run riot. There was competition of who could confess the most sins and who could confess them most frequently. People were confessing to stealing flour from a flour mill for, for stealing lumber and sheep and potatoes and turnips and parsnips. Some confessed to stealing all of them. Annie Eliza Young wrote, and I quote, one conscious stricken old lady who felt impelled to confess and could think of nothing that she had done wrong was immensely relieved when she remembered that she had taken a radish without permission. She seemed to derive much consolation from the fact 
that it had burned in her stomach ever since. Taking it all in all, it was a time of the wildest confusion and the intensest ill feeling. If there were any persons who did not come forward readily and acknowledge their faults, some would do it for them, telling their brothers and sisters sins in the public congregation. And again, this is from Wife Number 19 uh, by Anne Eliza Young, page 183. So here they are telling each other's sins in public. Yeah, it, it was just such a, a fervor of, of sorts, and, and they'd preach from the pulpit and put people on guilt trips, and they would confess to things sometimes they hadn't even, mm -hmm. hadn't even done. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that happened around 1855, too, was uh, crop failures. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, a lot of the preachers uh, would blame or blame the Mormons for their lack of spiritual uh, or, or their, the fact that they had spiritual failures, and that's why the crops failed uh -huh. in 1855. So, so kind of, it was always the people's fault. Yeah, it was something the people's went wrong fault. That God was punishing them for these crop failures because they didn't have the right spiritual attitude. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I always like to say, and when I hear things like that, is, is that God is blamed for more evil than the <laughs> Satan is. It's, it's awful. You know, when Brigham Young became aware of this craze in Payson, many Mormons expected him to put a stop to it, uh, but instead it, <laughs> he started his own revival. Instead, he gave his approval to it. In fact, in the winter of 1856, Brigham Young began to institute his own reforms uh, throughout the entire territory. Now this one began with Jedediah Grant who loaned a mule to a friend and he determined that that friend wasn't properly taking care of his mule and this so incensed him, he must have had a horrible temper, that he called a meeting where he publicly accused numerous people with various crimes of inefficiency and hypocrisy and he ordered them all to repent. So this was the beginning of the famous Utah Reformation. This Jedediah Grant was also a, like a first counselor to Brigham Young, second first counselor. Yeah, he was. And must have been kind of a hellfire and damnation speaker. Cause, it's, uh, it sounds like it, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. It, and he didn't have much restraint at all. No. <laughs> and so um, this, this revival that uh, Reformation, uh, the frenzy that Brigham Young started was even more hyster hysterical than the Payson hysteria was. Um, one of Brigham Young's plural wives, Anne Eliza Young, also wrote this about the Reformation, and I quote, A catechism was compiled and printed by their order, and elders were appointed to go from house to house with a copy of it, questioning the people. This catechism contained a list of singular questions, many of which I distinctly remember. They were after this style. Have you ever committed murder? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever been drunk? Do you believe in polygamy? They were forced to answer on threat of expulsion from the church. Every person throughout the territory was commanded to be rebaptized. No one dared to protest. It would have been a risk to their own lives. Any disapproval was threatened by cutting them off from the church below the ears. Now, cutting people off below their ears. I think they got the message. For is that. their <laughs> yeah. throat cutting, yes. blood atonement ritual yeah. to pay for their sins. And we're going to talk more about that yeah. a little bit later in the show. Um, and during this Reformation, getting married and giving in marriage was required by the leaders. It didn't matter if the man was 70 years old. According to Brigham Young, he was still a boy. And you have a quote there from about, yeah, about from that from Fanny, Fanny Stenhouse. Fanny Stenhouse. She said, the brethren are all boys until they're 100 years old, and some young girls of 16, 15, and even younger 
would be counseled to marry him. She might have even have a sister no older than herself, and then as likely as not, he would take the two to wife, and very probably both on the same day. <laughs> <laughs> now, this was a normal thing during this polygamy time. It wasn't just a, an exception. Well, there were some that even resisted doing polygamy until they started listening to these uh, and put on guilt trips for not because they knew they couldn't gain salvation without practicing polygamy. Right, that was what they taught. Yeah. And, and the young girls were told that they needed to marry a well-tested patriarch or an older man so that their chances of exaltation into, into the celestial kingdom would be certain. Yeah. And of course, that's just like today's polygamy groups. And, 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 and how many young girls' uh, happiness and childhood has been violently stolen from them because of this kind of, to get, to get an old codger into the highest yeah, heaven. And to think that that was their way to get to heaven and, and put them on a guilt trip. For, and so uh, I asked the question again, where's Jesus? Yeah. It's, it's only Jesus who gets someone to heaven. It isn't marrying an old codger in polygamy that does it. <laughs> His name is not even mentioned. Well, during that time, unmarried women and girls were forced to find a husband and a husband was forced to get more wives. In fact, a joke at that time among the Mormon women had, uh, that they had among themselves, a private joke was, and I quote, if you were to hang a petticoat upon a fence pole, half a dozen men would flock at once to marry it. Now this might seem absurd, but that's the way it was during the Reformation. Everyone, whether they were married or not, was counseled and commanded to get married. And I might add, that polygamy was the standard for marriage in early Mormon culture. It wasn't just two or three percent of the population that were that lived polygamy as some of the church uh, people would like you to know. Actually, uh, new estimates are that 25 to 30 percent of the really? men were polygamous. Now, if you look at it like this, if 25 to 30 percent of the men were polygamous and they each had two wives, that would mean 50 to 60 percent of the women were. Wow. But some of the men had more than two wives and many of them did, so that yeah. means as many as 80 or 90 percent of the women would have been polygamous. I, I would have hated to have been about a 16-year-old cute girl in, uh, in those days. That would have been rough. That would have been a hard thing. Yeah. Uh, and being, you know, coming from a polygamy group, you're born and you're raised with that doctrine. It yeah. seems to be the normal thing. It's hateful, but yeah. it's, it's the normal well, thing. Well, and you knew your parents were going to be pushing it as well as your leaders and mm -hmm. the priesthood leaders, so it would and, have been rough. And it's all thus saith the Lord, you yeah, know, and they don't know any better. And uh, during this time uh, at Fanny Stenhouse also, and I have a quote from Tell It All, she said, and I quote, during that strange time, the frightful anomaly of men of 50, 60, and even 70 marrying mere children, girls of 14 and even 13, forced itself upon the attention of some of the leaders. In those times, unmarried girls were very scarce. In the settlements, it was difficult to find any at all. Not infrequently it happened that a brother was counseled to marry but could not obey as there was no unmarried women in the place where he lived. Two old brethren had been counseled to enlarge their families but had been unsuccessful in finding partners. They began to despair of being able to obey the word of the Lord. It then occurred to them 
that there was a certain brother who had two daughters, respectively 12 and 14 years of age, and they resolved to call upon them about these children. The father at first refused them, giving, us, giving as a reason that the girls were too young. The old men explained that if they could not marry the children, it was impossible for them to obey counsel, and the father then agreed. The next morning, the marriage ceremony was performed in the endowment house. One of these wretches was 60 years of age and the other a few years younger. The father of the children was about 40. I am really afraid that the reader will think that I exaggerate or misrepresent facts. I wish it were so, for the case is so outrageously atrocious. But I am sorry to say that scores and hundreds of instances similar to this, which occurred during the Reformation, might be given. So old men married young girls in polygamy. You know, they claim about war, complain about Warren Jeffs and some of this stuff. That stuff was going on in early Mormon polygamy. It just went on. And it wasn't normal for a teenage girl uh, in those days to get married, like you hear some people say. They use that as the reason for, they, for them practicing polygamy. Well, they say they the young, young girl, like when Joseph yeah. Smith married the 14-year-old. Well, that was the time. That was you just have to the way they do that. But, you know, the average age of, a, um, of, of women, females getting married in the 19th century was in the, their early 20s, not in their early teens. It happened, but it was rare. Their, wow. The average age was in their early 20s. And what would the young men do? Uh, you, do you think they that's would, a good question I mean they they be bu bumping heads with the with the patriarchs all the time I'm sure trying to get and that's how it happens today in polygamy groups trying to get a wife and they can't because all the women are taken to the leaders yeah it's uh, and uh, you know they there there are many who think that by advocating polygamy it will equal uh, let equal quality in marriage will be achieved but this next quote by Mormon polygamous leader Heber C. Kimball should cause all of us to shrink back in terror over Kimball's teachings and rantings. And we've quoted this before on the show, and it's worth recording I, another I've dozen times. I've heard you times. quote this before. It says, <laughs> on July 16, 1854, First Counselor Heber C. Kimball recommends decapitation for adulterers and preaches from the pulpit concerning unclean women we wipe them out of existence. <laughs> twisted thinking, isn't that twisted it, preaching? It's scary that, that they would actually... That a man can have multiple partners and be considered righteous, but, but a woman, if a woman does, she, she gets her head cut off. Yeah. Now Heber C. Kimball had 45 bed partners. He had 45 sexual partners that he called wives, and yet he advocated decapitation for a woman that had more than one. That was a violent spirit of the Mormon Reformation of the 1850s, in fact, of Mormon polygamy. The following announcement that Earl has proves our point, something that was said <laughs> a little bit later after that one yeah. you just read. In 1858, September 12th, the church's historian historian's office notes the discovery this morning of a severed head of a Provo woman who has been at U.S. military camp for a week. Six weeks earlier, another woman's head is discovered. These are the earliest verified examples of someone taking literally the teachings of Mormon leaders that apostates and adulterers should have their heads cut off as blood atonement for their sins. It was a fierce... Michael Quinn. It was a fierce and hostile history of early Mormon polygamists. And you know, it was this kind of thing, reading that I first did, that convinced me that Mormonism in every form could never have come from God. 
Yes, this doesn't sound like anything from God, does it? God could not be the author of this. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Yeah. And Jesus is always working for our redemption. He's, he's not the God of retribution looking for body parts to be removed. <laughs> what about those that would say, well, this was just a, it happened a long time ago. Let's just, it didn't, wasn't all that important. And they do say, they that, do say that, but our history is important, it. who we are, yeah. you know, it, it, and, 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 but there has been, and there has been changes made, I agree. The polygamy groups have made very few changes, yeah. actually. Yeah. But this is Mormon and polygamy history. It's, history. it's both of and our history. And when you think of these leaders as supposedly in, con in uh, communication with God, being directed by Jesus as head of the church, it just, it yeah. just can't be right. Was Brigham Young a prophet? Yeah. If he was, then this would have to have been from God. Yeah. Was Heber C. Kimball? He was a, a top uh, apostle. Uh, well, you, presidency. You, uh, what, yeah. What, yeah, so were they from God or not? And probably the best well-known <laughs> incident is the castration of a young man in Manti, which was ordered by Bishop Warren Snow. It's, the, it's probably the worst example of the frenzy yeah. of the early Mormon Reformation and the lust and the violence and the lawless arrogance of this early Mormon Reformation. You yeah, let me read, read that. that. In 1877, John D. Lee uh, in Mormonism Unveiled told the story of Bishop Warren Stone Snow of Manti, Utah. He had several wives, but there was a fair buxom woman in the town that Snow wanted for a wife. She thanked him for the honor offered, but told him that she was then engaged to a young man, a member of the church, and consequently could not marry the old priest. He told her that it was the will of God that she should marry him and that she must do so, that the young man could be gotten rid of. We could send him on a mission. Um, the girl and her fiancé both refused to give her up. Ordered to go on a mission, the man refused, and Snow decided that he should be castrated, saying, when that is done, he will not be liable to want the girl badly, and she will listen to reason when she knows that her lover is no longer a man. The bishop called a meeting of the priests, and the young man refusing again, the lights were put out and an attack was made. He was severely beaten and then tied with his back down on a bench when Bishop Snow took a bowie knife, performed the operation in a most brutal manner, and then took the portion severed and hung it up in the schoolhouse on a nail. The man dragged himself away to some haystacks where his friends found him the next day. Later, Snow talked to the people about their duty to the church and their duty to obey counsel and the dangers of refusal and then publicly called attention to the mangled parts of the young man and stated that the deed had been done to teach the people that the counsel of the priesthood must be obeyed. The young woman was then forced to marry him. According to Young's counselor, Wilfred Woodruff, when the circumstances were told, President Brigham Young sustained the brethren who presided at Provo. In May 1857, Bishop Snow's counselor wrote that the 24-year-old Thomas Lewis has now gone crazy after being inflicted by Bishop Snow. When informed of Snow's action, Brigham Young again said, I feel to sustain him, Bishop Snow. So those Brigham, are the references. Yeah, and there's the, the references. This, this isn't, by the way, just someone saying something. There are many, many 
written accounts, uh, Wilfred Woodruff's diary, the Mormon hierarchy, extensions of power, Rocky Mountain Saints by T.B.H. Spenhouse, Mormonism Unveiled by John D. Lee, and many, many other places that are solid with all the footnotes, uh, references to this event that actually happened. And Brigham Young did nothing against Bishop Snow. In fact, he ordered the matter to be hush-upped, and he remained Bishop of Manti. I think I even read that he spoke again at a general conference later on in life. He, uh, he did, I think in the, in the 80s, 1880s yeah. or 70s or somewhere so he later he was, did. Uh, and Brigham Young gave him a blessing too yeah. afterwards, you know. I mean, wow. if, it's just, again, like I say, God is not the God who who demands parts to be, heads and other parts to be taken off of our bodies. Jesus came to redeem. He didn't come to do this kind of thing. Um, and from, from Quinn's book, we read on April 5th, and I quote, of 1858, the Bishop of Payson, his brother, the sheriff, and several members of their LDS congregation joined in shooting to death 22-year-old Henry Jones and his mother, Mrs. Hannah Jones Hatch, for committing incest by which she has a daughter. The men also kill the infant and also castrate their brother and father. The perpetrators are indicted the next year but not brought to trial. When indicted again in 1889, the Deseret News article criticizes the trial of this antiquated Payson homicide as an anti-Mormon crusade against those who were justifiably disgusted and greatly incensed against the brutal mother and son. The former sheriff is convicted of murder. The former bishop is acquitted. <laughs> of course, this is not justice. It's gross lawlessness. And again, like I said, it's this kind of thing that convinced me that no way could, could Mormonism, could God, be part of this? Could God <laughs> have been the author yeah. of all of this. Um, that's a lot of what we've been talking about with the um, uh, polygamy and the marriage and the craziness that went on with that. There's much more than, of course, than what we've been talking about. Um, it's time to take our break at the, at the half hour mark, but there's a lot of things we want to talk about still yet about blood atonement uh, that took place. But we're going to open up our telephone lines and you can call in and make remarks or comments or ask your questions. Our telephone number is 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. When you call in, you must turn your volume down. And as we wait for your calls to come in, we have our message to share with you. You are watching Polygamy, What Love Is This? Broadcasting live from Salt Lake City, Utah. This program is the broadcast outreach of A Shield and Refuge Ministry. Shield and Refuge is a point of first contact for Mormon fundamentalists who question the doctrines of the religion or who are actively seeking for an opportunity to escape the polygamist lifestyle. Examining the claims of fundamentalist doctrine against the backdrop of biblical truth is central to our efforts. We invite you to contact us. Call toll-free at 877-425-9993 or email us at tv at We want you to know that we have made available to you some outstanding resources free of charge. You will find them at our website, www.whatloveisthis.tv. There you will find the DVD, Lifting the Veil of Polygamy, which documents the real-life stories told firsthand of those who were lifted out of the culture of polygamy through the power and love of Jesus Christ. Also, free of charge to you, 
is the booklet, Is Polygamy Biblical? It explores plural marriage in the context of God's Word and answers questions like, Did God ever command polygamy? Is it part of God's plan? While you are at our website, make sure to take advantage of the archived episodes of this program, which can stream on demand directly to your computer. There are more than 100 shows to choose from. And if someone you know is unable to view this program via live broadcast, recommend that they visit this same website every Thursday at 8 p.m. Mountain Time to watch this show through live streaming video. Simply follow the links to the live streaming video page. If you are watching live tonight, we invite you to call us as we open our phone lines. The number is 801-973-TV20. That's 801-973-8820. Now, back to Polygamy, What Love Is This? with our host, Doris Hansen. Welcome back to our show. This is Polygamy, What Love Is This? And with our co-host, Earl Erskine, we've been talking about the early Mormon Utah Reformation took place in uh, the late 1850s, about 1856, 1857, with a yeah. little uh, starters and, and afterwards that took place as well. Um, we are going to talk now about the Blood Atonement Doctrine. That's pretty uh, sensitive doctrine with modern day uh, the LDS people as well as polygamists because the polygamists have kind of pulled, some of the polygamists have pulled that through and even used that as a threat. Our telephone number is 801-973-8820 for our callers who would like to call in and make comment or ask question about our topic tonight. So, Earl, you have a statement from September of 1856 that no. introduced the blood atonement. You know, and, and when you've been talking about this Reformation in total, you have to remember that the saints came here in 1847, so they were here just this 10-year period, fairly isolated, and they were just con totally controlled by their priesthood leaders. They yeah. were all answering to them, and, and when they decided to create this fervor that we've been talking about, forcing people to be rebaptized, confessing of sins, and forcing polygamy on them, uh, their only their only way of it was either kicking them out or instituting or, something called blood atonement. The, yeah, there, there was so, no accountability. There was no, no rule of law. It was no. a theocracy. It yeah. was total theocracy. Yeah. At the time. So here in September 1856, there was a notable service in the Bowery in Salt Lake, at which several addresses were made. Heber C. Kimball urged repentance and told the people that Brigham Young's word was the word of God to this people. Then Jedediah M. Grant first gave open utterance to a doctrine that has given the saints in late years much trouble to explain and the carrying out of which in Brigham Young's days has required many a Mormon denial. This is what has been called in Utah the doctrine of blood atonement and what in reality is the doctrine of human sacrifice. Wow. And that's what it was. It was that's, a threat. It was it, a, a scare tactic to force people to, uh, and it to worked. obey. And it worked. And, but, and as they were scaring them, it, they often did it. It was a doctrine and it was a practice. Now this last quote he just gave said that Brigham Young was speaking the word of God. So people can't go out and say Brigham Young w yeah. went off on his own little tangent there. He claimed it was the word of God. That makes him a false prophet. And Eliza Young also wrote from wife number 19, and I want to quote, 
It was during this time that the cruel doctrine of blood atonement was first preached. Jedediah Grant preached that those who apostatized ought to pray to the Lord to kill them. And um, here's a sample of what Grant preached. Quote, I say there are men and women here that I would advise to go to the president immediately, that's Brigham Young, and ask him to appoint a committee to attend to their case and then let a place be selected and let that committee shed their blood. On another occasion, he said, speaking in his wild, fanatical manner, <laughs> we have been trying long enough with this people, and I go in for letting the sword of the Almighty to be unsheathed, not only in word, but in deed. Brigham Young, not to be behind his counselor, assured the saints that this doctrine of throat cutting and blood shedding was pleasing to the Lord, and that it was a glorious and soul-saving belief, end quote. Yes, scary isn't it that's very scary and i think it scared the people when they started hearing those things you yeah. know and it's the kind of precinct that caused the violence that would in that would incite the frenzy and the violence yeah. with the people and it and these people had immigrated here they had trust in their leaders they believed that they were speaking for god they were kind of locked into a spot here they probably couldn't get away very easily they couldn't. and uh, to to think that they're leaders or prophet of God was giving this kind of counsel. Is, uh, I can is just scary. imagine how their hearts failed them when they got here and, and saw and heard some of the things that were going on when they were assured, like polygamy, they were assured, these Europeans, they were assured that polygamy was not a doctrine of the Mormon church. John Taylor was in France and he was uh, proselytizing and they said, but what about this polygamy thing? He had somewhere between seven and, and 11 or 12 wives at this time and he said, Polygamy? <laughs> Why, that's a horrible thing to accuse us of. And he denied it, and then they got here and discovered that actually, in order to stay, yeah. they had to practice polygamy. Well, and you were saying polygamy is their only way to salvation, and they're saying, too, that if you've committed certain sins, the only way for you to gain salvation is to shed your own blood. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. It is. It's, it's crazy. And it caused the people to submit blindly to their leadership. Yeah. And if they didn't, they were whipped, they were mobbed, they were murdered. Their property was either confiscated or destroyed. And this next quote that you have uh, gives an example of that. Yeah, this is from wife number 19. A merchant of Salt Lake City, an Englishman, was suspected of being cool in the faith and to have little or no sympathy with the fanatical proceedings which attended the Reformation. His store was entered one evening by saints in disguise. He was pulled over the counter by the hair of his head, dragged into the street and thrown into the snow, his snor store plundered and all the money taken away, his house set on fire and his sick wife barely given time to escape with her children. Um, and an ex I'm sorry, as an excuse for all this, he was accused of having spoken against the authorities and had entertained Gentiles at supper. Wow. Good heavens. Yeah. <laughs> what a uh, sin. And, and you know what? That's paranoia yeah. is today about speaking against church authorities yeah. and having friendships with Gentiles, with outsiders. Yes. We call, in the polygamy group, we called them outsiders. Oh. We weren't to, 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 to socialize with, with outsiders at all. They weren't supposed to be our friends. And this is part of the Joseph Smith legacy from the beginning, and, and it's still today. The doctrine of blood atonement was Brigham Young's penalty that relates to people being put to death for sins that yeah. He explained in a sermon in September of 1856 during the Reformation. He said, and I quote, 
There are sins that men commit for which they cannot receive forgiveness in this world or in that which is to come. I know when you hear my brethren telling about cutting people off from the earth that you consider it strong doctrine, but it is to save them, not to destroy them. And furthermore, I know that there are transgressors who, if they knew themselves and the only condition upon which they can obtain forgiveness, would beg of their brethren to shed their blood. I will say further, I have had men come to me and offer their lives to atone for their sins. It is true that the blood of the Son of God was shed for sins through the fall and those committed by men, yet men can commit sins which it can never remit. There are sins that can be atoned for by an offering upon an altar as in ancient days. There are sins that the blood of a lamb or a calf or of turtle doves cannot remit, and they must be atoned for by the blood of the man. Interesting. Yes. Yet Jesus, let's not forget Jesus, okay? He said in Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. There's only one unforgivable sin. And that one unforgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is denying God's testimony about Jesus Christ. Yeah. Okay? Unbelief. Unbelief. And, and, and Jesus, there, he, he's the only person on this planet who, who has the authority to speak this way. He's the only one that can forgive. He knows what sins he will and won't forgive. And, and nobody is his equal or above him that can change what Jesus said. There's only one unforgivable sin, folks. I know there's still people who believe there's more than one, but there's not. So Brigham Young didn't even know the truth about the God that he claimed he was talking no, about. That's a real <clears throat> problem there. Oh, my goodness, I guess. Let, let me read one quick little thing, Doris. This mm -hmm. is, I took this from a, a church history book. It, I think it's actually a student religion book, maybe from BYU. I'm not sure, but I've written the quote down. It's just a couple of sentences, and I, we don't have it on the screen. But again, this fervor that was going on in these few days. And let me just mention that the uh, Mountain Meadow Massacre occurred in 1857, which probably was a result of, of some it. of this fervor. Mm -hmm. This is what this book says. This is kind of, a, again, a church book. It says, the Reformation had a positive effect upon the saints. Religion and moral practices once again took prominence in their lives. By the summer of 1857, ten years after entering the, the Great Basin, the church was on a strong footing and was accomplishing the things it was restored to the earth to do. So that's the church's perspective. That's the church. Of those that, again, that's perverts. the whitewashed Clorox version of what yeah. really happened because this cannot produce good. That's it, right. it, it cannot. Um, we do have a call right now coming in from uh, Sanpete County, a man by the name of Leroy. Hello, Leroy. Hello? Leland. Okay, you're on the air. What's your question? I would like to know... Uh, What's your question, sir? I would like to know uh, if you believe that Joe Smith really went out and... Can you hear me? I yes. I can hear you. What's your question? Do you, have you turned your volume down? 
Hello? Okay, that was my problem. Okay, what's your question? You must hurry. Do you really think that Joseph Smith went out and seen God? Did Joseph Smith see God? No. No, he didn't see God. Even in his own writings, he said that uh, no one can see God if they're in their sins. They must be holy. And Joseph Smith was a sinner, so he couldn't have seen God by his own writings. Another question, please. Go ahead, quickly. Uh, did Joseph Smith start the polygamy, or was it written on? It was Joseph Smith. Section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, he started with Fanny Alger with the roll in the hay in the barn in uh, I think 1831 or two, and Emma caught him. I mean, this was this is a well-known event, and he's been doing it ever since. It's in the introduction of the of section 132. It says that this doctrine was known as early as 1831. Mm-hmm. So it was 1831. Yeah. So it was Joseph Smith. In fact, we're going to do a show on on the. Uh, the 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 thinking that it was Brigham Young that started polygamy instead of Joseph Smith uh, later on this year. So okay, can one more question. You do believe that you the the massacre the massacre Mountain Meadow Massacre by Mormon. Oh yes, there's there's uh, there's absolute proof that it was by Mormons. The Mountains Menace Massacre. Yeah, this book again talks about that. It was another kind of an interesting whitewash of the story. It, it claimed that the men killed only the white men and the Indians killed the children and women, which is kind of, kind of a silly thought. But uh, <laughs> anyway, that... That's uh, not the way it worked yeah, at all. Yeah, Mormons were definitely involved in that. Yes, they were. They definitely were. They knew about it. Um, we have, thank you, by the way, thank you for your call and for your questions. Uh, folks, if you'd turn your volume down when you first get on the line, it would sure make it, things go faster here. I promised a bibliography of, of where we uh, got some of this information for the show tonight, so we'll put this up on the screen now. Um, our information for <clears throat> these tonight came from these sources. I know you can't write them all down. Uh, however, if you will email us for it, tv at aboutpolygamy.com, we'll be happy to send them to you, and you can start doing your own research, and uh, or you can Google um, on the internet the Mormon Reformation of the 1850s, and you can find a lot of information yourself. Um, we have a call on line one from Jacob. Hello, Jacob. Hi. Hello, you're on the air. Thank you. I have a question, actually, about, uh, well, my family, uh, we, they, we came from a really strong Mormon background. I was raised that way until I essentially stopped going when I was about 14. But, uh, you know, like you've mentioned over and over, uh, they don't really talk about the, the sort of quotes that you're reading or the, the things that um, are reported as, uh, you know, happening and, and being said and so on with the quotes or, or the these awful things that these so-called prophets have been doing and saying and so on. So my question is, uh, well, with, with my mother, for example, total warm, or LDS, totally, completely, and diehard, you know, very dedicated. But uh, I, with, with information that, you know, even if I just have questions, it's sort of blown off. You know, if I, if I presented something like this, which I have, maybe not... Uh, like some of the quotes and things that uh, you events you've been talking about today, um, maybe not quite that extreme, but I've you know had questions, and she just says that you know the Mormons were persecuted so 
bad that um, and nobody likes him, that everybody, you know, kind of ganged up on him, even the news reporters, and they misquoted them, they, they false, made false reports, and, and so on, and so it's just kind of brushed aside. So I guess my question is, what would be a good delivery system to show that this is good substantial information, I mean, you know, information that it, this is what happened, this is what they said, this is what they did, and this is, uh, it wasn't the Mormons being persecuted exactly, well, I mean, maybe justly, but it was kind of the opposite way around and even within their own LDS yeah. Uh, yeah. clique. Well, and so what's a good delivery system to bring this sort of information to people like my parents or family, people like that? Well, you know, um, Jacob, the, the, it's, it's information that we have read. I mean, Wilfred Woodruff's journal, surely that's acceptable. The Journal of That'd Discourses. Uh, this has come from Mormonism's own people. Tell it all. By Annalisa or Stenhouse, she and her husband were Mormons, and he lived as a polygamist. Annalisa Young wrote a book, Wife Number Nineteen. She was one of Brigham Young's wives. I mean, we have this for first, uh, first source. And good. so there it is. Okay, that, and I didn't know any of that. Jacob, part of the problem, though, Jacob is, is as Doris has mentioned before, there's a willing blindness that goes on. Yeah, stubborn ignorance. Uh, yeah, if you yes. want to call it stubborn ignorance. In other words, they're just not willing to talk about it. We were just talking to one of our good friends here earlier tonight, talking about him engaging a Mormon in conversation about the pride they had in their polygamy background. You know, well, I came from a, a grand, great-grandfather who had two or three wives, and, and they were talking about their heritage and all that. And then this, and it was mentioned, well, now what about Joseph Smith practicing polygamy? And there was dead silence. They didn't yeah. want to talk about that. They don't, didn't want to consider it. They didn't want to discuss anything right. that had to do with that. It's, they it's were proud local. of their polygamy background and heritage, perhaps, but didn't want to even consider the fact that Joseph Smith married teenagers and women that were already married. Yeah. Didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. So, so it's willful blindness. It's yeah. willful, willful, willful ignorance. So <laughs> I, would, I would pray and ask God, put a Bible in her hands and... See if she can't come to the truth. Uh, give her the internet and see if she can't do a little searching or something. I don't know. There's so many, yeah. so many answers to that question. Well, and I kind of just got one, uh, you know, that from you guys, which was, I mean, that was his own journal. So that's pretty. Like, I was looking for something substantial to present, and I think that pretty well does it for at least, good. you know, a couple of things, a yeah. few things, yeah. a, a good start. Mm -hmm. good. Okay. Well, thank you, guys. I appreciate and, it. You know, Jacob, you could go to utlm.org, utlm.org, and there is a ton of resources there where the Mormons are quoted, their own quotes, and you might be able to find something there as well. Right on. Okay. Thank Good. you. Uh huh. Th thank you. You're welcome. Goodbye. Okay, we have Trent calling from Texas on line two. Hello, Trent. Yes, ma'am. Yes, you're on the air. All right. How are you doing, Doris? Wonderful. Wonderful. Me too. Good. I just kind of looked into the conversation that was going on on TV, and I wanted to put in a little bit of two cents, if that's possible. Okay, if you make it fast. Exactly. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I grew up Mormon in Utah. I moved to San Antonio. Been there about 13, 13 years. And I became a Freemason. And during that time, you know, my eyes kind of just opened up. And after being a Freemason, I realized a lot of things that they did not allow in Utah. 
And that is the truth. <laughs> Joseph Smith was locked up in prison. Yes, okay? he was. He would send people on missions and impregnate their wives. That's right. Exactly. And I am a Freemason of the Prospect Hill Lodge in San Antonio, Texas. And I asked about this. Why do they copy Freemasonry? Why is this going on? And I was told that we killed Joseph Smith. The and I said, well, why is that? They're doing the same reason. He was out impregnating everybody's wives. He was copying what we do. And he was lying and manipulating everybody that there is. So I just wanted this to be known that in Utah, people are very um, manipulated. Mm -hmm. Once you leave Utah, you can see things in a different light. That's right. And it's not all about Mormonism. None of it is. That's true. Thank you very much. We appreciate your call, Trent. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Trent. Now that's interesting that the, that he calls. He he leaves Utah. He becomes a Mormon in Texas or a, a Masonry in Tessa, and now he can compare the two yeah. and knows that more, Joseph Smith stole from Freemasonry so much of the things that they do. Yeah, all the, well, the handshakes and all the things that go on in the temple uh -huh. are, are from Freemasonry. Yeah, the 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 temple ceremony was yeah. patterned after that. Yeah. So that's extremely interesting. One of the things that I thought was kind of interesting in my research about this time period was uh, one of the things that happened during this t same time, in addition to the Mountain Meadow Massacre, was Johnston's army coming here. And I'd never realized this, I guess as a faithful Mormon, I always thought that yes, the United States government was attacking the, the Mormons, you know, I thought that was it. But it just turned out that President Buchanan had selected another person to be governor of the territory of Utah, and he was installing that governor to take, go uh, to take uh, Brigham Young's place. I think his name was Alfred Cummings, mm -hmm. and he ins installed this, or, or brought this army to, to install this new governor, and he was probably because of Indians and maybe some concern about the, the Mormons, but that was the whole purpose of that, and the Mormons always you know, always have this story about the Johnston's army attacking. Yeah, and the persecutions and all that. As a persecution, yeah. but it was just to install him. And he was the governor from 1858 to, I think, 1861, this Alfred Cummings. And, and you know what's interesting, too, is they talk about persecution. They persecuted each other. The Mormons well, did, sure based on what like we're it. talking about yeah. here. They definitely yeah. did that. Put so. them on guilt trips. And <laughs> That's true. Okay, uh, Earl, there's another quote I think we've got here from you, from D John D. Lee, um, oh. about Anderson, and um, who married, he's a Danish <laughs> convert, and, and he married a woman with a widow, or who's a widow, and she had a grown daughter. Yeah, Anderson, uh, this is from Mormonism Unveiled as well. Anderson desired to marry his stepdaughter also, and she was quite willing, but a member of the bishop's council wanted the girl for his wife, and he was influential enough to prevent Anderson from getting the necessary consent from the head of the church. Knowing the professed horror of the church toward the crime of adultery, Anderson and the young girl at one of the meetings during the Reformation confessed their guilt of that crime of adultery, thinking that in this way they would secure permission to get married. But 
The coveted permit was not issued and they were notified that to offend would be to incur death. Such a charge of adultery was very soon laid against Anderson, not against the girl. And the same counsel, without hearing him, decided that he must die. Anderson was so firm in the Mormon faith that he made no remonstrance. I worked on that word, actually. <laughs> Simply asking half a day for preparation. His wife provided clean clothes for the sacrifice, and his executioners dug his grave. And at midnight they called for him, and taking him to the place, allowed him to kneel by the grave and pray. They then cut his throat and held him so that his blood ran into the grave. His wife, obeying instructions, announced that he had gone to California, I guess as an excuse. So, yeah, where did, what happened to him? So that is blood atonement in action. They actually practiced it. They did that. Now, before, again, like I said at the beginning of the show, before we get a lot of emails and, and anger from mainstream Mormons who do watch our show, uh, that we're picking on the Mormons. The history of polygamists and the history of Mormon is one and the same, up to and including 1904. Then it kind of goes uh, splits, but up to that point, it's the same history. Same prophets. It's the same, same prophets, leaders, yeah. the same teachings, and the same history. Okay, yeah. we have on line one, Mickey from Ogden. Hello, Mickey. Hello. You're on the air if you're really quick. Okay. Um, my my question my question was um, well not my question I wanted to make a comment from that guy that he said about people the church stealing things they basically stole the clean living movement is the word of wisdom and that was another thing that Joseph Stiff, that Joseph Stiff Smith stole because if you really study American history you would find out that the clean living movement was another thing that was stolen. So I think there's not much that Joseph Smith didn't, that he actually, I don't think there's much that he actually found out himself. I think most of the stuff was stolen from other people. So I don't think masonry was the other thing that was stolen. The clean yeah. movement was stolen too. And, and you're right, that's, somebody that's actually, very true. Somebody I think has written a book and explains how the different things of the that were in Christianity at the time of 1820s were all answered by uh, the Book of Mormon too. Uh-huh, yeah. Ba infant yeah. baptism and some other things. Yeah, interesting. And uh, again, it's interesting that, uh, thank you, Mickey, for that information and for bringing that to our attention, because that's so true. Um, I want to share a recent poll. We only have a few seconds left before the closing comments uh, that was published last week in the Salt Lake Tribune. And it shows that Utah voters are okay with the NSA and the new Utah Data Center and all that they're doing out there, but they're still against polygamy. So even after all of this, the U normal Mormon U uh, Utah is against polygamy. And Cody Brown is suing federal courts seeking to decriminalize polygamy. And those polled in this, in this poll want him to lose his lawsuit. 61% believe that polygamy is morally wrong and that there is justification for keeping polygamy illegal. And wow. that's what happened in Canada a couple of years ago when yeah. they took that to court. So God is 100% against polygamy, and at least most of Utah still is, and we appreciate that. And we hope it gets even more so. So thank you, uh, thank you, Earl, for My joining pleasure. us thank again tonight. Thank you for having me. 
Uh, and in my closing comments, I want to ask our viewers, does God's people really behave the way that we've talked about tonight? Is this the content and the spirit of what Jesus taught? Check out the foundation of your church. If it didn't have its beginning 2,000 years ago, you're in the wrong church. You're not in the only true church. There are many folks who leave a polygamy uh, family or a polygamy group and they consider or actually join the mainline Mormon church because it's familiar to them. It feels comfortable. But stop and think. It was Joseph Smith who started the polygamy that you're running from. It's the same Joseph Smith of all the Mormon groups. The history of polygamy is Mormon history too. The history of Mormonism is filled with deceit and violence and terror and lying for the Lord. And Jesus said the root of the tree determines the fruit. And a bad root produces a bad tree which cannot produce good fruit. If your root is it Jesus Christ or is it Joseph Smith? That's the big question. According to the Bible, Joseph Smith could never have been a true prophet of God. You know what? Doctrine does matter. A false prophecy does matter. The false teachings that, that previous and present leadership embrace does matter. And these all have eternal consequences. You need to find out what they are because they do matter. And the, we pray that our culture will hear and believe and respond and renounce all historical Mormon teachings, turn from Joseph Smith and embrace true Christianity, which had its origins 2,000 years ago through one man, Jesus Christ, who saves us by His grace, not by works or polygamy. Good night. This has been the audio podcast edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? This program is a production of A Shield and Refuge Ministry and Main Street Church of Brigham City. You can view current and past video episodes as well as download audio episodes of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. If you or someone you know is in need of assistance in leaving a polygamous situation, please contact us. We are here to help. All of our contact information can be found at shieldandrefuge.org or call us at 877-425-9993. If you have any questions or comments about this or any of our other programs, we'd love to hear from you. Write us at email at whatloveisthis.tv. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again.